Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm having another podcast host on the air and on pod with me, and we're going to talk about nothing. I mean, seriously, we're going to talk about next to nothing. We, don't we are the Seinfeld of podcasts. Yeah, yeah, but funnier. But and, funnier. Uh, and more and more and more card. That voice you're hearing, that actually an excellent radio voice. Thank you. Belongs to Andrew Heaton. He's a comedian. He's an author. He's a political satirist. And most importantly, for our purposes here today, he's the host of The Political Orphanage. It's a comedy and news podcast, which, you know, by the way, it, it's I want to ask you about this. It's getting harder and harder to do. Let me finish introing you. You are a frequent contributor. Andrew Heaton to Reason TV. Mm-hmm. You've hosted the popular web series mostly weekly. You are the author of three best-selling political satire books, including one that we we're going to maybe hear a selection from soon called Los Angeles is Hideous, poetry about an ugly city. And uh, you also have one laughter is better than communism. You've actually won a number of LA Press Club awards for political satire. You, like me, worked on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. for a minute. And this is the best part of your bio. I love it. You once opened for William Shatner, who pronounced you very funny. I hope he did that as part of a spoken word version of oh, Rocket God. Man. That would be great. Uh, that would no, be great. I, 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 I did. Like, I, I, I hold that dear to my heart. Like be, Being a comedian, there's a lot of downs in being a comedian. But whenever anybody tells me you're not funny, I just I remember being in Las Vegas, sneaking up to Shatner after I did my set going, hi, can I get a picture with you? And him going... You're very funny. I mean, going, yes. Like it literally to, to, to convince me I'm not funny. You now literally have to get Patrick Stewart to come tell me I'm personally not funny. And that just brings us to neutral. We're just neutral there. That would, that would totally kick the guts out of me. If Patrick in that sonorous tone, he was like, you. Matt, I do not think you're a very amusing man. You think you're <laughs> terribly funny, but you're not. Like, yeah, yeah. It, would, it would just that's ruin it, wouldn't it? Thank that's you. That's pretty good. You actually, that's a, that's a great cross. You've, you've got a little bit of uh, Sean Connery yeah. combined. Yeah, with, you're right, yeah. You know, like, I'll give you a good slap. Anyway, okay, look, we're, we're already off the rails. This is, you know, actually, this is where I want to start out. You do politics mm-hmm. and you do satire. Mm-hmm. Is that... Is that getting harder and harder to do? It feels like, yeah, it feels like people are humorless for uh-huh. one thing. For another thing, the subjects that we talk about in politics are not very funny anymore. Like they're they're kind of they're kind of like they're bad. They're like, hey, a group of people just attacked the Capitol and tried yeah. to stage a coup, and we can't even agree that that happened because that would offend someone. So, mm-hmm. like, do you? Is it like hard to do what you it's, do? It's super hard right now. Like I, I went into it. I, I, I'm an independent. I, I know you, we, we were both blue dogs or we worked for blue dogs when we were on the Hill. So I'm an independent. I'm ethnically a Republican. I converted to the Democratic Party when I was in college. Did you have to have something cut off for that? I did. I did. I had to have a bris. I was very confusing, but yes. we were all pretty drunk. And then, and then I, I became an independent. I read a lot of Milton Friedman. So I was like a libertarian for a while. Now I only claim to be an independent. And when I got into political satire, my naive reasoning was, I love Steve Colbert. I think he's incredibly talented and funny. I love PJ O'Rourke. I think he's incredibly talented and funny. In an ideal world, and what I thought was going to happen was like, PJ and Colbert will write about the same thing and they'll both be so funny and it'll almost be like getting a prosecutor and a defense attorney for the audience, except that both cases are really amusing. And that has not been the case. Unfortunately, 
there are people that are capable of laughing at things they disagree with, but that is a diminishing group of people. I, I find that the the longer we get into whatever horrible alternate universe we're living in, the the more that people, they they almost feel like laughing at something they disagree with is betraying their team. And it's like, I read tweets all the time that I'm like, God, that's funny. I don't agree with the other. Like, if I was going to write an exegesis, I'd tackle that and say, I think you've misunderstood this term. Social democracy is different than socialism or whatever. But, but I could laugh at it and be like, that's funny. That's gotten harder. So I, the, the, the tribalism is really ramped up. It was particularly difficult during the Trump years. It's actually gotten a little bit better during Biden, although now that Roe v. Wade is probably going to get tossed out. I suspect we're going to go back to a 12. Under Trump, it was really hard for, for two reasons. It, from just a comedic perspective, it was difficult for two reasons. One, everybody that wasn't pro-Trump was ratcheted up to, to a 20 on a 10-point scale of, of being really freaked out, which made them, which made people not receptive. And then the other part was that in humor, part of your tool set is exaggeration. So for example, I can take somebody like John Huntsman or Mitt Romney, and I could really exaggerate these moth-like individuals. Like there's there's a fairly beige personality that we're beginning with, and I can add polka dot and so on and so forth. With Trump, if the headline is Donald Trump hits Rosie O'Donnell with golf ball from from submarine while wearing sombrero, I'm like, I don't know where to go with that. And and so it was this kind of weird thing where the the headlines were the satire for about four years, but they yeah. put all of us kind of out of business. It got better when, when Biden came in, everybody calmed down. In my experience, everybody calmed down to, to a great extent. Like we went from like a 12 to an eight. Although I think Roe versus Wade's probably gonna throw that all out of whack again. And and then the other thing that that has weirdly happened to, to just alienate everybody at the beginning of the program, Matt, is that there has been this kind of pendulum effect that's taken place over the last 10, 20 years, where when I grew up in the 90s. The people that tended to get to get really worked up about word choice and about just intuiting morality to jokes tended to be the conservatives. It was sort of the, right. the church, church lady type. So like back in the 90s, the Simpsons would do something, the conservatives would all freak out and the progressives would go, it's just a cartoon. Don't worry about it. Like just you're really putting in too much effort. And that's kind of swung back the other way now to where I don't know whether because Trump got everybody so worked up or what, but a lot of the progressives have kind of become the, the pearl clutchers of the, you can't say that. And so for those of us that don't have, like, I, I'm, as I said, I'm an independent. I can't play the, ah, the other team's fully evil. Our like, since I'm just trying to make fun of situations, it's really difficult. It, it, it must be really difficult. I mean, first of all, I love the idea that somewhere out there, there's such a thing as a political moil that, you know, goes <laughs> to work on you yeah. and you kind of come out. And I, I, I really, I, we have to have a, a deep exploration of what it is that is excised from you as part of that process. But <laughs> It, it it does seem like it's it's really hard, and there's so many ways we could go with this. You and I were talking off air before we we started the show about it's just it's hard to interact on Twitter, man. Yeah. Like it's it's very hard. No one finds anything funny, and everything you say is going to get you know taken out of context, and it's so so that whole thing is that whole thing is really hard. I I'm going to betray being a bit of a Democrat here, and. I'm going to blame Newt Gingrich for all of this because interesting. Okay. From my standpoint, what I think his fundamental insight was that, that people didn't realize at the time was there is no longer any value to toning yourself down and yeah. holding Commenting. back at all. It's everything is always at 11 on, on the other side is evil. You're mm. good. And as part of that, what when I started 
in politics. And yeah. when I started on Capitol Hill, there were always voices in the room telling you, oh, can't say that. It'll backfire. It'll boomerang. People will find that too harsh. They'll be, they won't like it. And maybe they were right at the time, but that's decreasingly true. Yeah. And so that, that I think is a lot of what's landed us where we are because now as a Democrat, I would never make fun of Joe Biden because it would feel like I'm just giving right. ammo to the other side. And strangely, paradoxically, I wouldn't try and do satire. I wouldn't try and do a gentle satire of Donald Trump because it's humanizing. Like the whole Sarah Palin dynamic on, like I think the Tina Fey thing may have helped Sarah Palin more than it hurt her. Interesting. Because it was humanizing. If you can laugh at yourself, you know, you 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 seem like a three dimensional character. All right, I've I've just thrown a lot at. No, you. that's I'm great. Not the expert, you're the comedian. No, 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 that's great. So I, your your points are all taken. I'll I'll work my way to Gingrich because I think that's really interesting, and I'm I'm fascinated by by fixing systems. Like I kind of I think right. part of the reason that I'm able to work as an independent is that my my mind works in such a way that I don't tend to see the world as good guys versus evil guys. I tend to see the world as good systems and bad systems. So if you've got a bad system and you put good people in, you're still going to get a bad, a bad output. So I want to talk about Gingrich in a minute. In terms of the humor, I, I see all of your points and I definitely get bit for that. Like I will make fun of I'll make fun of Biden and then I'll make fun of Trump or I'll make fun of Hillary Clinton. I'll, I'll, I'm an equal opportunist and I'm I objective, like I, I preferred Biden over Trump. I preferred Hillary over Trump as well. I've, I've been pretty clear on that, but I'll make fun of like Trump for one week. Then I'll make fun of Biden. And then when I make fun of Trump again, all the people that heard me make fun of Biden go, what are you doing? Like, you're supposed to be a conservative. Right, I'm like, right, no, right, I've, right. Never, I've never claimed. I've always said I'm just an independent and a comedian. I don't claim that I, I have like an orthodoxy I have to uphold. It, it is really uh, difficult. I like, I'll push back slightly on the humanizing. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw down the Buddhist card and say yeah, that it's, it's, it's always good to humanize people. I, I think that a lot of the rancor we have in the country right now is from the fact that we've we sort of lost sight of common humanity that we have with people. Now, I, I'll, I'll say that that makes the most sense at the top of the pyramid. I think that our elected leaders are most likely to be sociopathic. And, and I, I mean that in the sense of just, I, I read a book by uh, Rutger Bregman called Humankind, and he's basically taking to task all of these sort of Hebesian narratives of, of mankind's horrible. And he really makes this good case. Most people are very decent, but in a democratic society, if you have no sense of shame, you're able to rise to the top a lot higher. So you see like a, a difference in soci sociopathy between like a mayor Who's, who needs to get along with everybody and like show up at the diner and, and get along with both sides versus like Ted Cruz, who can like just has no sense of shame, right? Right. Um, that being it's like said the on Peter the principle, right? It's like you rise in politics to the level of your of your maximum level of shame. Right. And if like, you have zero, you can rise to the top. Yeah. And I, for that reason, I, I'm, I'm like C-3PO from Oklahoma. I'm hobbled by, by protocol. I'm hobbled by, I'm, I'm running for mayor of nothing all the time. So I could never do that. Uh, I do think it's a good idea to humanize at least our, our neighbors and the people around us. Um, I think right. one of the, one of right. the problems that we've really had the last few years that happened kind of coterminously with Gingrich, we've had this sort of, have you, have you read uh, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam? Are you familiar with that? I've not read it. I haven't read it. It's it's a it's a really good, interesting read. It's thick, but it's good. And and basically, the premise for anybody unfamiliar with it is that America sort of reaches its apogee of civil, like robust civil society around like 1965, defined as just how many things are citizens involved in, like 
garden club, church, bowling league, little league, book club, that kind of thing. How many things are people a part of? It, it kind of reaches its height in 1965. And it just, it's been a downward thing ever since then. Maybe TV, maybe technology, maybe politics, I don't know. But what I, what I do think has happened to a large extent is that as we do kind of pull apart, we become more alienated. We lose the ability to meet people we disagree with who might be decent. So like if I, yeah, I say right, this as right. I, I'm a friendly, low wattage agnostic. I'm not saying this is a religious guy. I don't go to church. But one of the benefits I see to church is if you go to church and you're a Republican and your deacon's a Democrat, you can go, you know, I know he's wrong about that, but he's a good guy. You know, I trust him with my kids, that kind of thing. And I think we've, we've lost that. So the humanizing thing I'm very much in favor of. The Gingrich thing that you brought up, Matt, I think is fascinating. And I think there's something to that. One of the other things that Gingrich did that I think has been corrosive to the, the process is he highly encouraged Republican congressmen to not live in Washington, D.C. Right. And I, I can kind of understand the rhetoric there of it's your job to represent the people, not to fraternize. I, I get that. That being said, I'm sure you and I have both talked to congressmen that have experienced the incredible deleterious effects on their family of having to do that. Like, I, I don't remember the congressman, but I think he was a blue dog and he left because his son called him. His son was in middle school, called him and said, when you come home, do you want to play catch? And he went, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And his son unironically said, so should I call your scheduler? How do you want to do this? And he just started crying because he's yeah. like, my God, I can't like, and, and like, I would, I, I felt really bad for Dan, the guy that I worked for. Dan's a good guy, loves his wife, loves yeah. his kids. Dan knew he couldn't bring his kids and his wife to DC with them because everybody in Oklahoma would say he was a sellout and that he, he'd gone local and all these different things. Like, no, he just wants to see his goddamn family. Uh, so Gingrich put a stop to that. And I think that that uh, stopped a lot of that kind of necessary backroom comedy that happened. Like I'll say as a Hill staffer, I got drunk and made out with people across the aisle all the time. I, I was... I, I was having fun at parties and things. And what did that do? It made me um, far more likely to work with people across the aisle. It made me see the humanity in them. It also, even today, like if there's a Republican or, or a, a Democrat I need to get a hold of, I can call some of my friends from my, my old softball team slash drinking problem and, and call them up and we're buddies, right? And like, I think Gingrich kind of put a stop to that. The other thing he did was he exacerbated something that had happened under a previous Democratic speaker, which was, if you go back to like the 50s, committees were way strong and right, individual right, members right. weren't, the speaker wasn't that strong. Like if you go back to the fifties, the speaker didn't know the legislation that was going to happen. It was kind of an emergent thing, right? Democrats kind of, they, they restrain that somewhat, but then Gingrich kicks it to the next level. So Gingrich replaces what had previously been done largely by seniority. He basically does uh, committee, committee chairmanships. He basically allocates uh, on a basis of like fealty to the speaker. So he's now giving committee chairmanships to like Skippy, the second year congressman because he's buddies with Newt. And the, the incredible problem I see with that is now, now you have a system where Congress is largely just rubber stamping whatever the, the speaker is doing. And it also creates all these negative externalities of like, well, the speaker is basically giving marching orders and you're, you're going to become today a chair because you raise the most money for either party, not because you are good at it. Like if it were up to me, I would just have the committees elect their own chair. And then I think they'd probably do more and they'd probably be able to compromise and get things passed. You know, the, the major thing that I took away from what you just said is that if we could just get congressional staffers to share more STDs, yeah. we might be able to bring an earlier mode of Washington back where, yeah. you know, you would all 
show up, you get you get your your treatment for for your uh-huh. sip or whatever it is, and you bond over that, and you'd have some shared human experience. You know what? And I'm going to go a step further, Matt. If you're a Hill staffer and you'd like me to come help you with this process, I'm happy as a veteran of the legislative branch to come and and you want to like some Cawthorn in this, right? Yes, you, that's you, right. I'll just throw a little coke. Yeah, I'll, I'll slink in, bring some things, find out where I left the drugs, so, you know, make, make sure that there's nothing incriminating that I left behind. Yeah. Uh, you know I, that Eyes Wide Shut was actually a documentary shot in the Cannon House <laughs> office building. That, you know but, that. Man, I've seen some things, dude. I'm sure you have, too. Okay, like, actually, can, can, I, can I ask, Matt, because I, I left like I left right as the tea, like right before the Tea Party came in. And I don't know how long you were there. When I was there, one of the things I was pleasantly surprised by about Washington, D.C., two, two, uh, I'll say three things that all surprised me. Me as a limited government, government skeptic type guy, I was actually very impressed with the intelligence of our our legislators compared to the average constituent. Having fielded quite a lot of those phone calls. You're damning with faint praise, but go on. I, no, I, like, like weirdly, you're kind of getting good bang for your, but like talk to a couple <laughs> thousand angry constituents and you're yeah, like, yeah, damn yeah. it, this guy they elect is actually pretty smart compared yeah. to that. Um, I'll say you're definitely, you're definitely getting bang for your buck on legislative staff. They are very smart and they're underpaid. Uh, again, I, as the tiny government guy, am like, we should pay staffers more. The, the, part of the reason that we have such a problem with lobbyists is that uh, staffers aren't paid enough. So they have to leave if they want to have kids, if they want to get married. They stick around three or four years just long enough to get that portfolio and take off. Uh, whereas right. in the United Kingdom, they have a dedicated civil service. They have like I, I would I would authorize higher salaries. And then the other thing I'll say, DC, um, DC's pound for pound probably the smartest uh, city in the country. It's one kind of smart. It's one very specific right, kind right, of smart. Right. Like it's a whole town populated by former student council presidents. So when you get tired of that, it's very irritating. But it's very smart. Like like DC, you can't you can't go to the bar and say dumb. Because people call you out on it. Like if you say, like, uh, man, can you imagine if Puerto Rico became American? Someone at the end of the bar will be like, hey, moron, the Adams Otis Treaty of 1897 made it American territory. You dumb <laughs> back. Like people will call you out on that. Uh, yeah. And then the, the final thing, and I'm curious for your position that, Matt, I, I found that behind the scenes, it was far more bipartisan than it led on. And I don't know whether that stopped or whether that's just a veil that is used for partisan purposes. Like when I was there, Jim Inhofe and Barbara Boxer would fight like cats and dogs when they go get dinner. I would get drunk with Republicans and Democrats. We, we'd go hang out. It really wasn't that big of a deal socially. But I, I don't know. I think I've, I've been told from my Democrat friends that, that largely declined after the incoming Tea Party. But I, I don't know what your experience was. 100 percent true. Now, I left about a decade ago. So, you know, I, I think we're of a similar vintage, but I have a lot of former congressional staffers on this show. You know, so I've had Chuck Schumer's policy guy, Bernie Sanders, former chief of staff, and they will fully agree with you, by the way, that. They don't like the situation where congressional staffers are basically the larval form of lobbyists. Yeah. They, they're not they're not into that and they'd like to get rid of it. I do want to answer your other questions. I'm going to boomerang them back at you in a second. But we've got to take a quick break on WKXL. Much more with Andrew Heaton in just a minute. Welcome back to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm joined in this show by Andrew Heaton, a noted award-winning satirist, comedian, author, host of The Political Orphanage. 
my daughter was actually in a off-Broadway, off-off-off-Broadway. Okay, look, it was in Massachusetts, all right? But she was in a real regional theater production of Annie. So I hear Orphanage and I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm just picturing you and, and a bunch of other layabouts with mops, essentially. like That's basically what it is. Dance routine. That is, people should check that out. You can get that show, The Political Orphanage, I assume, wherever you get your podcast. Wherever you steal your podcast, Spotify, Apple, wherever it is, go check out The Political Orphanage. The Political Orphanage is designed for people that are tired of the red team versus blue team slap fight. I'm very tired of that. I'm mostly focused on why do things not work? How do we fix them? That tends to be where I'm coming from and how people think. I'm really interested in how people think. But if, if you're the kind of person that doesn't feel super catered to by either major party and you have friends you disagree with, you might belong at the orphanage. You know, I, I, that's, that's a good place to pick up because one of the things you were saying before we took a quick break on the radio a minute ago was, isn't it true that staffers still get along behind the scenes? I think that's true. And I do, I host this show frequently with former Congressman Hodes. And, you know, in addition to the parade of ex-staffers that we have on the show, we have a parade of current members of Congress. They all say the same thing, which is, no, we don't get along anymore. And it's kind of hard to get along with the folks who were cowering next to you during an insurrection. And they were like, oh my God, we're going to die. You know, and then five minutes later, like, that wasn't an insurrection. Yeah. I think the election was stolen. And they've 138 of them in the House voted to overturn the results of the election. And the Democrats were left flabbergasted. Now, look, if you're a Republican and, you know, I just offended you by what I just said. Sorry, yeah. I guess kind of good. I just it's it's awfully hard when you, when you, the divide used to be, you know, we don't agree on policy. We may have some moral issues that we disagree with, but. You know, I I came out of a vintage where you got like one change. It was like yeah, you could you could go from being a Republican to a Democrat as a staffer right one time. This this and was it, actually I have to say this was very noted. Like like this was just this was a saying on the hill. You get one change. Like I know what you're one. talking about. Yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. And I had you know I had many friends who did this. It was just ending as I got onto the hill, and it actually slapped some of my friends upside the head because they tried to do the one change. They got blackballed by the other side. Look, a friend of mine was a Democrat, went to work for Fred Thompson. You remember Fred Thompson in the line of fire? Movie star, Republican presidential aspirant. Yeah. For five minutes, he was going to win the presidential nomination like every other white man in America. And he, you know, he was a Republican. And my friend got blackballed by the Democrats, never worked in Democratic politics again. You know, you know what? I'll, I'll say I, I I say this without rancor. I actually do feel really sorry for sane Republicans. I feel like that is a difficult place to be. We we live in a country where I, I would actually like us to have more parties. I don't like the two party system. I wish we were a little bit more European. That said, we've got two major parties rather than there being a smart, sane party and whatever Trump is, I would rather there be two sane parties that are arguing about stuff. And I think we need yeah. that. We need like, we, we need a party that is a little bit more radical and we need a party that's a little bit more incremental, but that's an important debate to have on the, the speed of change. We need to have, we need to have a party that is more optimistic about what the government can accomplish and a party that's more optimistic about emergent order. So like, like the, like the John Huntsman's of the world that, that I, I view as like a very sane, rational Republican that like I could get sure. behind. I feel sorry for those guys. And a lot of the guys that got like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and, and some of these Republicans that to their great credit took a principled stand against Trump and got ousted and are just out of the house now. And it's it's a shame because it's like, right. I my, my interpretation of the Tea Party when it came up was that it was basically an alliance between two groups. It was 
kind of populist energy and libertarian rhetoric. And now it's not even that. It's just the populist energy. It's just the loudness and the volume without like a real ideological core to it. And I, I don't care for that. I'm kind of, I, I could be like a good Rockefeller Republican. I would have made a good, like socially liberal country club, like uh, lower taxes, but gays are fine. Kind of, I, I would have been fine. Right. But I feel like that is now drifting away from whatever the current Republican party is. Well, I, I mean, this, we were talking about this a little bit before we got on the air that you and I have both in our career worked for blue dogs, which, you know, only some idiot from who had worked on Capitol Hill would know or care what that yeah. means. Like moderate. Particularly given that there's like three left. Although yeah. actually, I, I don't know this. Did, did Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema claim to be blue dogs? Because they were very much fit the mold. She was when she was in the house. I, I I don't know if Manchin defines himself, but it's, you know, it's like conservative. You you represent a conservative area. And those are the folks. It was like it, it was a pretty bad process if you were a moderate Democrat, because first the Republicans came for you. Yeah. They came for you in the redistricting after. Oh, that's right. I was going to rant about this. Can I rant yeah. at you? No, you rant okay. first and then I'll rant. All right. You, first you of all, first. first of all, the redistricting is bullshit. And that happens all the time. Gerrymandering is anti-American. It is like a, a fundamental cronyist Putin-esque way of do, doing democracy. And it happens all the time. I should acknowledge both parties have done it, but the Republicans are doing it very well at the moment. And I would love to have some kind of system that they have in like Iowa and California of having citizen-based districting as opposed to the legislature do it. The legislature will like cut out your opponent's house from their district. It's absolutely horrible. Tim Holden, the guy that I worked, the second guy I worked for in the house, got districted out. Tim Holden had four cities in his area that are all like basically Tim. They're working class, blue collar families, a lot of old mining towns, kind of traditional, like not super like East Coast Ivy League type liberal, but just like union liberal. And if you were to look at his weird district, it was he had like a quarter of each one of these little cities because the last thing they wanted to do was let him actually have an area that was contiguous. So they ended up districting him even worse. He got primaried, which makes sense. He got he got pushed out. And then and then a conservative came in. And one of the things that I wish that the conservatives would be aware of is that the the like the Tea Party largely came in at the expense of the blue dogs. The Tea Party wasn't going after like AOC type people. It wasn't going after Pelosi. It didn't have the traction there. So what it did was it went for the low hanging fruit. It went for the the more moderate blue dogs, which this is really inside baseball here. Blue dog could mean um, socially liberal and fiscally conservative, or it might mean socially traditional and fiscally progressive. But in any event, it, it represented a kind of midpoint. The Tea Party came in after those guys and those gals, knocked them out. And then what happened? What was the result of that? Well, one, you lost this extremely important bridge between the Republican and Democratic Party, because previously, the last vestige of overlap within the United States Congress was the Blue Dogs. If you go back to like 1950, there was incredible overlap. Like if, if we were to go back to 1950 and, and your daughter came home to you, Matt, and said, I'm dating a Republican. In 1950, your response would have been like, well, what kind of Republican? Do you mean like a Barry Goldwater, Western libertarian? Do you mean like a moderate George Romney? Do you mean a right. liberal? Like, like Are a you Nelson a good witch or a bad witch? Right. right. Like it, it It really wouldn't mean anything. Same Democrat. If, if, you, if a Democrat came up, you'd be like, well, do you mean like a union Democrat? Do you mean like a Southern bourbon bigoted Democrat? Do you mean like like a college professor? Like it didn't really mean anything. It was such a broad tent. But the result of that was you could actually get work done because you'd have like a Democrat in Mississippi 
that was like emphatic about gun rights, but also really thought the WPA was a good idea. And you'd have a Republican in New York who wanted lower taxes, but was incredibly pro-gay and pro-immigration. So you'd have these workarounds. That all started changing in the, in the 80s and 90s, perhaps through Gingrich. I don't know what the instigating factor was, but the Blue Dogs were the one ligament between these two groups, and they got knocked out. What happened? The ligament disappears, and the Democratic Party goes left because now there's no longer a, a, a drag effect on the Democratic Party. So like the, the, the Tea Party actually accelerated the progressive element of the Democratic Party. And I like, ah, oh, it drives me nuts. It's like, it's also one of the reasons I get kind of mad about when, when people get really bad at Joe Manchin, because your options are either Joe Manchin or a Republican. That's it. There's no right. situation where AOC runs in West Virginia and wins. It's either Joe Manchin and you get, or you get Mitch McConnell. That's it. Mitch McConnell takes the Senate or you get Joe Manchin. Well, that's, I, that's absolutely true. And actually I want to turn your, your rant back around into what the heck it is you're doing with your career? Because, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of sit in this space, you, you know, the ligament has been knocked out, like all of mine have, I mean, my body is essentially jello held together by, I don't know, like duct tape and, and Gorilla Glue, but you, you're very into the idea that humor can be a little bit of that bridge, right? So there's no connective tissue anymore between Republicans and Democrats. It's awfully hard when, you know, the Republicans are like, hey, do you realize that actually what's really going on is Democrats are running a pedophile ring out of a pizza place in Washington. So you want to be a bridge, it seems to me, in your career between Democrats and the remaining sane Republicans. Hmm. And you're kind of, you're kind of doing it with with humor and satire. Is that is that what you're after? Fair, fairly close, fairly close. I'm going to add a little bit of spin to that in that having just ranted gerrymandering, right. I think that the current system is one which facilitates ideological gerrymandering. So uh, I, I, I assume your audience is a very politically savvy group of people, and I don't have to explain all the terms here. But the, the way the current primary system works, unless you're in a state with open primaries and like top four candidates like Alaska. Alaska, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or maybe I think Maine might. No, Maine just has open primaries, right? Maine um, just ranked has uh, ranked choice voting. Right. So, so the yeah. way the current system works, like me being an independent, I think here in Texas where I live, I can vote in the Democratic primary if I choose. I can't vote in the Republican primary. In most states, I can't do either. So what ends up happening is the, the Republican primary is going to be settled by the extreme Republicans who want to show up and go to the primary, not by the general Republicans, who are a lot more moderate, or certainly by the whole constituency. Same with the Democrats. The people showing up to the primary for the Democrats are a lot more activist-oriented than the rest of the Democratic Party, which is a lot more moderate and a lot more centrist. What ends up happening is the district is given candidates that represent the extremists of both parties rather than the actual constituency of, of the district. I see myself as representing those people that are in the middle. There was a report that came out from Stand Together a couple of years ago that, the that hidden said tribes. hidden tribes, right? And it, yes. and it, there's basically the way they portray it is rather than having a left right spectrum or rather a red blue spectrum, they've got conservative extremists and democratic activists, which is about 20% between the two. Then 80% right. of people fall in the exhausted majority. And I was like, oh, I'm that. I'm in the exhausted majority. So I see myself as trying to kind of galvanize and, and get that group of people together because it's it's a weird thing where, man, I hate to get into a really like intense conversation with you, Matt, but like if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, I suspect that the legislation you're going to see coming out of the Republican Party is going to be extremely restrictive, even though if you were to do polling at a at a referendum level, you would find that most Republicans would be in favor of like 
well, we'll have abortion at the beginning. We won't have abortion at the end. Americans certainly would do that, right? But, but the way that the system is currently set up, it doesn't actually amplify the opinions of the majority or the constituency as a whole. It amplifies the, the opinions of uh, partisan extremists. And I, I don't fit into that category. So that's largely what I'm doing is trying to give a home to all those people that are increasingly alienated between those two poles. Well, you've heard it here, folks. Andrew Heaton declaring definitively that democracy doesn't work. And I mean, look, we all agree on that. Actually, I mean, joking aside, you're right. Democracy really is struggling. And I, I think it's because you were referring earlier to the fact that you focus on systems and we have systems mm -hmm. that are sort of insufficient to deal with the challenges of today. Worked pretty well in a kind of town crier age of how we consume information and, you know, when only the uh, white landed gentry were, were voting and doesn't work so well in the social media age of today. And that that seems to be, I don't know, do you think, I mean, you're you're really in the communication business. You know, you're you're kind of- I, I am a professional gas bag. I am, I am right. professional, I'm professionally clever. I'm paid to be clever. Right. I mean, essentially, if they decided, you know, I know you're into sci-fi, and if, if they decided kind of a la Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to ship the useless third of the population off the planet on, you know, like a convoy of cargo ships, you and I would be out of here. We would be gone <laughs> because all we do, it's like, yeah. if, if they asked us, well, what do you do? Like, what do you, what do you produce? It's like, no, but um, see, that, that'd be great too, because right now, they're like, so you're the funniest guy in America? And I'm like, not even close. Funniest guy in Texas? Probably not even the top 10. Funniest guy in the spaceship full of useless people? Possible. I might yeah. take that anyway. I might be the, the, the Steve Colbert of the Exodus spaceship. Well, you know, one, one can only hope. But yeah. actually, you know what? Speaking of which, I don't, I don't want to stint too long. We, we've had a, this is like, you know, I, I, I went to a boxing match and a hockey game broke out and it's like we're doing a whole show on political satire but you and i are former hill staffers we've actually had a, a fairly on the rails conversation about politics all of which that, I that's agree my with. fault i i love talking to i you know hill what because no, we, we've been in the trenches together and like i like you 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 know stuff that i know that like yeah so i yeah, i love yeah there is kind of something about that there's like a shared frustration venting and i hope yeah. it, it's kind of coming through to the audience because one of the things that that's apparent to me is that you know, you you use humor as a tool, but you really care about this. You're you're a very mm. passionate incrementalist and centrist, and you kind of believe in the power of this stuff. So am I. Now I'm going to drop all pretense of seriousness. <laughs> I want to invite you to explain to our audience in poetic form why Los Angeles is terrible. Can we at least unite America around? Very that? very happy to do that. Plus, you're you're in all New right. Hampshire, are you not? I, yeah, we, this your, is your show is in New Hampshire. In yeah. New Hampshire right now. And so maybe this will unite all of our uh, So first of all, I, I went up to New Hampshire. I was covering the, the New Hampshire uh, primaries in 2019. I love that state. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like Yankee Narnia. And I think it is the antithesis of Los Angeles. Like I literally, it, like if you were to pick the opposite thing of Los Angeles, it would be New Hampshire. So props to everybody that's living in New Hampshire. Also, if you're uh, an eligible female between the ages of, let's say, 28 and 40. Uh, I'm ready to cut a deal, and I like the cold. So reach out to me, and I'll move to New Hampshire. But I, yes, I, I, I think can, you uh, captured I, the idea that most people in New Hampshire have, which is, you know, it's 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 fine. <laughs>
I've got a follow-up question for you about New Hampshire, but I, I will I will try to unite the the New Hampshireites All right, uh, around around despising LA. So I wrote a book last year called Los Angeles is Hideous: Poems About an Ugly City. Uh, available lived, on Amazon. I have to point available out. on if. This is a great book for anybody either thinking about going to L.A. or if you've got a niece or a nephew or a kid that's just graduating college going out to L.A., this is the kind of irritating gift you can give them that might put a drag effect on it. I hate Los Angeles. And uh, this is the kickoff poem in Los Angeles' hideous poems about an ugly city. It is entitled The Greater L.A. Necroplex. Pretty as a cinder block smeared with lipstick, oh, blight of traffic and concrete dumpsters, thy principal building material is bathroom tiling grout. Drenched in sunlight as compensation, like a chef at Applebee's drowning freeze-dried sadness in cheese to hide the shame, the shame. All the beauty of a parking lot. And yet, ironically, you will never find a parking space. Watch them toss palm trees at strip malls to gussy up the streets like injecting Botox into a corpse. Behold, the concrete slabs with squares gouged out where dreamers peek from cramped rooms to gaze at hobos masturbating into open sewers. Hard square lines and jarring angles, every neighborhood is the used tire district. Enjoy yon liquor store with bars across the panes. There are no parks, but there are a lot of tent villages. Tis not a city, but a meat grinder that devours skinny hopefuls and burps out chunks of porn star. Warm but humid, the wet spot on the bed you just made with your crazy ex who's probably lying about birth control. Los Angeles is a prison yard with sparklers, chugging champagne beneath an overpass, a public toilet with a boob job, Instagram filters on a dead harlot. Oh, that's spectacular. That's great. You know what? I would say that in terms of ranking poetry that's appeared in the English language, at the very top, you've got to have Ode to a Lump of Putty I Found in My Armpit One Morning. And Mm -hmm. and that that last piece from you is got to, that's that's number two. Thank you. I, I, I... I'm very pleased with it. I, I was like, yeah, I maybe I'm just going to throw this out. If Joe Biden is listening, I think I would make a good national poet laureate. I think I'd be pretty good at it. And I'm happy. You and to... Amanda Gorman, clearly, you know, you could, you could go bowling together and come up mm-hmm. with some great stuff. Anytime she wants to collaborate, I'm down. Does she fit the criteria of what you're looking for in, in a dating strategy? That's, that's the question. Oh, she's maybe not old enough. Not old. Wait, enough. How old is she? I don't know. She's on, you, you said 28 to 40, I'm, right? I'm 38. I feel like anything below yeah. 28, we're no. asking for trouble. No, it's, it's half your age plus seven, right? Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's right. That's the formula. So yeah. Is it 29 then? I'm not sure. I'm not great at math then. 28, 29. Yeah. I'll, I'll be like a fun avuncular character to her. How about that? You know what, you know what we got to do? I actually know some people in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has a poet laureate. Did you know that? No, I didn't. So okay. here's, here's you know, what I'm going to invite you to yeah. do, man. You have got to compose a poem about New Hampshire. And here's the key. You've got to do nothing but diss Vermont. If you do that, (laughs) I think we can make you, you know what the difference between Vermont and New Hampshire is? What? Basically, Vermont is, their state flag is like cows grazing in an open pasture. And New Hampshire's, is a velociraptor shooting a machine gun. <laughs> that's essentially that's essentially what so if you can right. get tap into that dynamic i will get your work in front of the governor of, of new hampshire and we're going to make this happen i will a hundred percent take you up on this because i i loved visiting new hampshire i will be back for the 2023 new hampshire primaries 
So like, I might even take like an exploratory trip, particularly now that it's hot as, as anything here in Texas. I might just go up there for a week, scope out the state. That'll like, it's pretty small. I could do it, right? If I rented a car and then, oh, yeah. and then get the stuff rented. No, that sounds great. Like, and then like uh, if, if, the, if the governor could give me like a honorary, a nonsensical title, like Lieutenant Poet Laureate or, or Admiral yes. Laureate or something, yes. that'd be great. I would love to start collecting those. You know, the future governor of Maine, for whom I worked when he was a member of Congress, would sometimes answer the phone in his own office if he felt like it. Mm-hmm. And at one point, someone asked for, could you, could you get me the flag coordinator for people watching this on video? I've got a, an American flag behind my head, mm-hmm. and it once flew over the Capitol. This is a service that congressional offices provide. They will give you a flag that flew over the Capitol for like 20 seconds. And so someone called up and asked for the flag coordinator. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm just the deputy flag coordinator. That's what we're going to do with you, (laughs) Andrew Heaton, future lieutenant poet laureate of New Hampshire. Seriously, you know what you should do is you should do a little web series, like a little web video series. You should just go and bomb your way around New Hampshire during the primaries and like meet people. If you're in the center of the state. Actually, so another thing I could do. So one of the things I did in 2020, unfortunately the pandemic ran afoul of my plans, but I tried to reboot the Whig party uh, and run as the the candidate, but I'm a humble guy. So we only nominated me as vice president. We didn't have a presidential candidate in 2020. It was just me as vice president. I was going to go down to Louisiana and try and get actually on the ballot because the worst case scenario is i'd kick it to the democrats and i was like i'm all right with that i don't mind being that's great uh so i was good maybe i'll do that maybe i'll go to new hampshire and just run as the Whig party and like explain like i'm running for the Whig party nomination like uh i i right now it looks pretty good because there are no other Whig party people but i just want to make sure and then do like kind of a faux candidate type thing because that's what do this everybody they go to the vermin supreme do you know who vermin oh i've i've hung out with vermin when i was you could be that guy well there you go I, I would be like the John Cleese of Vermin Supreme. Like imagine like like yeah. uh, Ver- Vermin Supreme in a three-piece suit. That's what I'll do. Aim high, Andrew Heaton. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. The, that's, that's the goal here. You know, I, I, I think this is a spectacular idea. And you are right. My wife and I used to joke when we lived one town west of Concord that if you're in the middle of New Hampshire, everything's about an hour away, unless you're mm-hmm. going up north to the north country. They call it Coas County, which has an umlaut over the O, just, you know, because wow. they're, oh, they're fastidious up Who's there. Who's that they, from? Uh, I don't know. The Germans, maybe? Okay. Yeah. Like, All right. Uh, peaceful German settlers who arrived in 1945 to hold the <laughs> do what we say. I don't know, but uh, everything is about an hour away. So yeah, you could work your way around. I, I also love the idea of having never been to Vermont, just declaring it an enemy state, just going like, look, I went to New Hampshire. I'm on team New Hampshire. Yay, That's Velociraptors riding a unicycle with a gun. Uh, and I'm going to say mean <laughs> things about Vermont and maple syrup and Ben and Jerry's. You know what you should do, actually, now that we know that Donald Trump wanted to fire missiles into Mexico, you can't order that as the lieutenant poet laureate or deputy governor or vice president of the Whig Party. But what you could do is get a potato cannon and shoot over the Connecticut River into Vermont. I think that would people would appreciate that you could be governor of new Hampshire. Not, not only do i think that's possible it, it, it in true sincerity if i go to my audience and go hey guys if you all will venmo me money i need three thousand dollars to buy a cannon but if i get it i will shoot potatoes at vermont from new hampshire <laughs> and if you want to come you can hang out and you can i'll even shoot your potato i think that's a like in terms of becoming a senator i'm probably not going to do that right getting like a nbc late night show 
getting my audience to fund a cannon I shoot potatoes at Vermont with, I think that that is eminently doable. That can happen. It will happen. It should happen. Look, I don't think you and I have solved the red-blue divide in America, or you've created a new humor-based ligament between Republicans and Democrats. But I do think we've launched a great political career in New Hampshire for Andrew Heaton here on Beyond Politics. So subscribe to Beyond Politics. Subscribe to the Political Orphanage podcast. Andrew, thanks so much for being on. Hey, this was a blast. Thanks, Matt.